Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and I hope you're ready for an even deeper dive into the wonderful world of Activision Blizzard and their imminent, at least in the world of law, purchase by Microsoft for just a little bit under $70 billion. In fact, we're covering so many angles of this, the biggest story in gaming maybe ever, but certainly at least this year, with a brand new playlist, Microsoft Times Activision. Please do check it out. This will be the third video on that playlist, but I can assure you it won't be the last. Now, a number of you have reached out to me through social media, my emails. Otherwise, I'm always very appreciative of both the requests and tags and flags for things to cover in this space and said, hey, can we know a little bit more about the deal structure that is happening here? We got a little bit more of that information when Microsoft purchased Bethesda. Of course, we did videos in this space about how that transaction looks, trying to correct some of the misnomers that were out there that were being reported on in the video game industry. And fortunately for us, Activision has been absolutely great in filing all of its documents almost immediately. You can see here a series of documents through Edgar, which is the electronic database for SEC filings here in the United States, and everything that they have filed. So if you're interested in any of this, I will link this general page to you so that you can check out anything and everything that you want. A lot of this is going to be stuff that you've seen, LinkedIn posts, tweets, emails, stuff we've covered here in Virtual Legality, but you do get some gems, including the fact that Activision Blizzard is sending out emails to its business partners. And those emails are saying things like, we will honor all existing commitments. Importantly, this will not interrupt any of the actions Activision Blizzard's leadership team has implemented and made progress on throughout 2021 with regards to improving our workplace. This transaction will not change that. And in some versions of this email, you get the following. I have copied Sarah Bond, Corporate Vice President of Gaming Ecosystems for Microsoft on this email. Sarah and I plan to set up a call with you to discuss this more. That's for the important Activision business partners. For the ones that maybe are a little less important, you don't get that little tag that says, hey, Sarah Bond and I are going to call you. You instead get just the generic, please do not hesitate to reach out to me with any questions. So if you want to dive deep into Edgar and the SEC database, you can find all these documents and we'll be covering a number of them here in virtual legality in the future. But the biggest one is the description that Activision Blizzard has put out to its investors as to what this thing looks like, right? In the thumbnail to this video, you can see I asked the question, what's in the merger agreement? Just the word merger might have you asking, hey, Rick, I thought this was an acquisition. Why are we talking about mergers at all? And if you didn't follow the Bethesda ZeniMax acquisition, then you might not realize that one of the ways that you acquire another company is through a set of merger documents. You can buy all their assets, absolutely, but that's very tricky to do with a public company. You can also just acquire the company entirely, buy all the stock and just put it under your company as well. But more often than not, the form that a major transaction like this takes is what we call in the law a reverse triangular merger which is exactly what you see here. So if we look at this summary of the merger agreement, we see item 1.01, Activision Blizzard, which we're going to call company, is engaged in a merger agreement with Microsoft Corporation, which is called parent, and Anchorage Merger Sub Inc. Merger Sub. Now, this is where some of the reporting got a little messy when folks started to talk about the Bethesda ZeniMax acquisition. In fact, you might recall that a number of outlets said, hey, is Microsoft changing the name of ZeniMax to Vault? 
because they saw something here that said, hey, that merger sub is going to be called Vault, just like this merger sub is called Anchorage, probably to match up the A in Anchorage to the A in Activision, because you're going to be putting this documentation together at law firms and internally, and you don't actually want it to leak out before you have that press release announcement. So you use some code phrases. For ZeniMax, it was Vault, obviously a reference to Fallout. Here it's Anchorage, and you see the very same kind of structure that we saw when we were talking about what was happening with respect to ZeniMax. Microsoft owns this merger sub entirely. The merger sub merges in to here, reference to ZeniMax, but in the current transaction, Activision Blizzard. These both become one company. Vault takes on ZeniMax's name. Anchorage takes on Activision Blizzard's name. And when all is said and done, these people that own this blue box company over here get paid and then Microsoft owns the result. Doesn't mean they're changing the name to Vault or Anchorage or anything else. It just makes sense from a legal perspective because that reverse triangular merger allows you to do certain things under Delaware law with respect to getting shareholder approvals and also continues the existence of Activision Blizzard in a way that won't trip problems with their contracts. And that's an important aspect of any major deal but certainly one where you've got $70 billion in value and the number of contracts and relationships that exist at that company. So when you see this described here, you get the following. Merger sub will merge with and into the company, just like we were talking about. Here's merger sub. Here's the company. Goes over this direction. And as a result, each of the companies issued an outstanding shares of common stock with a bunch of legalese here that says, unless you reject it under Delaware law, will be canceled and automatically converted into the right to receive from parent $95 in cash per share. When that is done, Microsoft will own the combined entity entirely. It will be a wholly owned subsidiary of Microsoft and Microsoft can then do what it will with that entity. It can combine it with itself. It can drop it into different subsidiaries. It can do whatever it likes. But when this transaction is done, there will be no more public shareholders of Activision Blizzard everything will be owned by Microsoft by virtue of the way the merger statutes work. In addition, in case you are interested, you get a bunch of bullets like this. Each option will be canceled and converted into the right to receive the merger consideration, less the applicable option exercise price, et cetera, et cetera. You get the same thing with restricted stock. If you aren't familiar with these terms, basically what all of this is doing is cleaning up the capitalization table, right? Right now, Activision Blizzard has a whole host of owners, public investors, of course, but also employees, people that they incentivize. One that you know pretty well, Bobby Kotick, who has stock in the company, has certain options, restricted grants and things like that. And this says, okay, we're gonna buy out everybody that has stock and we're also gonna take care of the other kind of more inchoate, optional kind of representations of ownership in the company so that when all is said and done, Microsoft will be the sole owner. It will have paid all this money. And that's all normal course of business. They continue with their summary. The obligation of the parties to consummate the merger is subject to customary conditions. As we talked about in our first video in this series, it's very important to note that Activision Blizzard has not been bought here in January of 2022. What has been done is that the two parties have entered into a definitive agreement, binding them, as we will see, binding them pretty significantly in terms of dollars. And that binding has those two parties now going forward and trying to meet these conditions. But if there proves to be a problem with any of those conditions, Activision Blizzard is not yet Microsoft's. And Microsoft is projecting that this purchase will take place sometime before June, July of 2023. What are some of those customary conditions? One, we know 
the approval and adoption of the merger agreement by the company's shareholders, remembering that the company is Activision Blizzard. Activision Blizzard hasn't gotten that approval yet, but going through the normal processes, they're going to be submitting proxy statements, requesting that approval. And a couple of folks online have pointed out to me that most of Activision Blizzard's ownership is by institutional investors, folks that are running things like pension funds or other major strategic investment authorities. And they do tend to follow along with whatever the board of directors says to do. Here, the board is saying vote for the merger. They've approved it. Honestly, if you don't vote for it, we've got problems in terms of penalty payments that we'll see in just a second. And a lot of those institutional stockholders are going to follow that. Now, at the same time, I didn't bring it up in a document here, you've already seen plaintiff's class action attorneys start to solicit for stockholders of Activision Blizzard that maybe aren't happy with this. As we discussed yesterday, hey, it certainly looks like Microsoft bought low. Certainly looks like Microsoft maybe helped that low stock price a little bit. Are there stockholders that are upset at the board of directors, at Bobby Kotick for potentially taking the money and running and not maximizing the value of the stock that they held in Activision. So that will be something to watch as well. I will do a video on that if it gets a little bit past the plaintiff's class action attorney stage. But for now, it's important to note that the Activision Blizzard stockholders that do own the company, the board of directors doesn't own it. It's the stockholders that own the company haven't yet approved the transaction. So there's still a chance for this to go sideways if there was a stockholder revolt. Other conditions mentioned here, the absence of any court order or law prohibiting or seeking to prohibit the consummation of the merger or which imposes or seeks to impose a burdensome condition, capital B, capital C, as defined in the merger agreement. Now, we will be looking at certain aspects of the entire merger agreement, but burdensome condition, I can just shorten for you, is basically saying, hey, if the FTC or the DOJ or some other regulatory body starts asking us to do things that we think will materially harm the way Activision operates, the way we operate, then that is not the kind of thing that we just have to do in order to meet our obligations under this agreement. That if one of those regulatory bodies says, yes, you can do this deal, but X, Y, or Z, and we think that's a real problem, then that becomes a burdensome condition and we go into a different version of this agreement that may or may not get done when all is said and done. The third thing referenced here, the early termination or expiration of any applicable waiting period or periods under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Improvements Act, which, if you go back to the first video in this series, is really talking about the FTC and the DOJ getting their first look, potentially getting a second look at information, and then allowing their investigative period to expire. One thing that I will note here, and I might cover it in a more fulsome video later in this series, is that in the United States, it's important to note that the FTC and the DOJ don't approve deals. They don't give you a green light or a rubber stamp that says, yes, this is okay. They basically just stop investigating. And because of that, because they allow transactions, they don't approve them, they reserve the right to make trouble for transactions that later on prove to be either politically problematic or just problematic in general in terms of economics. And that's what we see with respect to Facebook and the FTC and the DOJ going back in time and looking at deals that were allowed, not approved, and saying, hey, maybe that was a bigger problem for competition than we thought at the time. So some of these customary conditions to this deal are approval by the stockholders, of course, not getting in trouble with antitrust authorities, having that investigation period end, and subject to specified exceptions and qualifications of materiality, or company material adverse effects, the accuracy of representations and warranties made by the company and the parent. 
So both of these companies in a deal of this size or any size, it could be $2 million, let alone 70 billion, they make promises to each other about what they can and can't do, that they can sign this document, that the company has X, Y, or Z characteristics. Here we'll see reference to things like we're not getting sued. We don't have labor actions. Things that have jumped out at people and have been reported on, I think, in a deleterious way out online. And I'm hopeful we can get corrected here in virtual legality a little bit. But what's important to note is that those reps and warranties, those promises still need to be accurate to some extent. We'll talk about why I give that caveat in just a minute. Continuing with the summary, we see the company has also agreed not to solicit proposals relating to alternative transactions or enter into discussions or negotiations or provide non-public information in connection with any proposal for an alternative transaction from a third party. We won't shop this around. That the value of this, spending the money on the lawyers to actually draft a 100-page merger agreement, it's actually 92 pages, but it's very long, to go through this due diligence process, to go and try to deal with the FTC, the DOJ, the EU, and everybody else is such that we need the board to commit to not just turning around and saying, yeah, they say $95, but wouldn't it feel good if you paid 115 that you won't go and do that? Except the board of directors of a company is a fiduciary of money that is not theirs. The investors of Activision Blizzard have invested their funds in the company and the board is just the fiduciary for it. They're just the ones guarding the bank vault, which means that if somebody were to turn around and look at $95 and say, well, that's a pretty good deal. I think maybe we could put together a consortium that could do 115 or whatever that might look like. And we should offer it to the board of directors. You see here that the board wisely and really legally having to agreed to say that we will permit the company board to comply with its fiduciary obligations in respect of any of these things. So you won't go out and try to cause trouble for us, but we understand that the board can't simply reject a deal that is 30% higher than ours because that's not fair to the shareholders and that would be a breach of their fiduciary obligations. However, continues this summary, subject to satisfaction of certain conditions and under the circumstances specified in the merger agreement, prior to the adoption of the merger agreement by the company stockholders, the company board may change its recommendation and may terminate the merger agreement in response to a bona fide alternative acquisition proposal that the company board determines in good faith constitutes a superior proposal as defined in the merger agreement subject to customary match rights. So you've got contractual matching and you've got a potential auction fight if it were to develop, but the board is reserved for itself the right to say, okay, if somebody comes out of the woodwork and just offers us a better deal, which actually isn't that hard to calculate because we're not talking about stock. We're not talking about wacky things in this deal. We're just talking about 95 bucks. So if you can give me more, then maybe that makes sense for my shareholders. Then the board can do that as they have to be allowed to do under Delaware and other state laws here in the United States. But Microsoft can match. Microsoft can otherwise cause trouble. And as we'll see, that can cost the company money, even if it has to do so to meet its fiduciary obligations. And what are those costs? Well, here is where we see the penalty provisions. A number of folks asked, hey, if this just dies, if something bad happens in antitrust land or otherwise, is there a breakup fee? And we didn't know that before we got these summaries, but the answer is yes, there is a significant breakup fee. Upon termination of the merger agreement, the parent remember that's Microsoft, under specified circumstances, including termination pursuant to an injunction arising from antitrust laws, 
when the company is not otherwise in material breach of any provision of the merger agreement. Long legal way of saying, hey, if the FTC or the DOJ blocks this, then the parent will be required to pay the company a termination fee. If it happens before we announce this thing uh, on January 18th or the, the first anniversary of when we announced this thing, January 18th, 2023, we'll owe you $2 billion. That's a breakup fee. If it happens between January and April of 2023, $2.5 billion. And if it happens after April 18th, 2023, $3 billion. And a couple of folks, after I was tweeting out about this particular provision, asked me, why would Microsoft have to pay that fee? And the answer to that is it's market standard to have the acquirer take on the risk of an antitrust injunction. And it is a risk. We talked about it in the earlier videos. We see a lot of people talking about it being a vertical monopoly, not a horizontal monopoly. I talked about horizontal monopolies. The answer is it's both. And we'll probably do a video in this series talking about the FTC and the DOJ, who just recently, two days ago, had a press conference saying we want to harden our merger guidelines, specifically with respect to technology and critical infrastructure. So we're looking at a regulatory environment that this has a non-zero chance of having difficulty with. And that doesn't mean that it won't go through. I still say it's more likely than not. So take that away if that's the only thing you take away from this video. But there is a non-zero chance that the federal regulatory authorities in the United States could say, hmm, we're going to take a second look, which I think is a fait accompli. I think that will definitely happen. And then after that second look, we might try to extract a pound of flesh. We might ask for a settlement that requires certain things of you to operate the company in a specific way, to not do certain things with Game Pass or cloud services that might be burdensome and might scuttle the deal or otherwise try to block the thing. It really depends on the personalities and individuals at those agencies and not any lawyer on earth can promise you that it will fly right through or that trouble will be caused by those agencies. So it's in the gray area. And Activision Blizzard says, well, it's a problem if we go through all of this, we tell everybody we're selling, our employees know we're doing this and it gets unwound. So in that circumstance, Microsoft, you owe us between two and $3 billion. Now, if we, Activision, walk away instead, this summary says the company under specified circumstances, including termination of the merger agreement to accept and enter into an agreement with respect to a superior proposal. So we say, uh oh, somebody actually did offer us $115. We took that instead of you. What do we owe you? We will be required to pay you, Microsoft, a termination fee of $2.27 billion. And I couldn't quite ascertain where that number came from exactly. It's not as flat as what Microsoft would owe in the case of an antitrust problem, but it's a heck of a lot of money. And it is roughly in relation to some other big deals that we've seen in kind of the media landscape. Some of these amounts are roughly the same in the Disney-Fox deal, which a number of you bring up. And that might be the basis for how these were arrived at, but it is a lot of money and it's more than that deal. Uh, to be entirely fair. So if you're thinking about this, understand if antitrust problems develop, Microsoft might wind up paying Activision billions. And if Activision winds up taking a different deal or otherwise scuttling the merger agreement entirely because of shareholder troubles or otherwise, they might owe Microsoft two plus billion dollars. There is real skin in the game when you sign this document. So we can expect the sale to go through. We can expect that the federal... Trade Commission or the Department of Justice won't cause trouble. But if they do, all hell will break loose in terms of fireworks and money changing hands. And that'll be worth watching as well.
Finally, in terms of summarizing the merger agreement, and I highlight this because it became a problem yesterday, I wanted to point out the following. They say the merger agreement and the foregoing description of the merger agreement have been included to provide investors and our stockholders with information. The assertions embodied in the representation, warranties, and covenants contained in the merger agreement were made only for purposes of that agreement and were solely for the benefit of the parties to the merger agreement and may be subject to limitations agreed upon by the contracting parties, including being qualified by information in a confidential disclosure letter provided by the company to parent in connection with the signing of the merger agreement. Now, that's a big, long sentence drafted by lawyers, as we do. But what it means is when Activision makes a promise about whether or not there's labor disputes, whether or not there's litigation, whether or not something else is happening at their company. When they make a promise, it's to Microsoft. It's not to you or to I. It's not something that is just factual of truth, but is instead a contractual comment in order to allocate risk. And it will be subject to a confidential disclosure letter, what you might have heard me refer to here in virtual reality as a disclosure schedule, that will modify how that representation or warranty actually operates. And we'll see how that works in the merger agreement. But I want you to put a pin in that because some reporting yesterday happened that didn't understand this. Continuing, they say, accordingly, the representations and warranties in the merger agreement should not be relied on by any persons as characterizations of the actual state of facts and circumstances about the company, the parent, or the merger sub at the time that were made or otherwise. You should not rely upon the truth value of those statements looking from the outside because most importantly, you haven't seen that disclosure letter. You won't see that disclosure letter. But separately, that in the land of mergers and acquisitions, the legal landscape here, those specific promises are not written to suggest their accuracy, but to establish who's liable when they're wrong. So companies all the time say something that is more broadly accurate than it might otherwise be in order to establish that if it proves to be wrong, we're liable, even though both sides might know there's a gray area and it might not be 100% truthful. So when you've got reporters saying, hey, this is what Activision Blizzard is saying about itself, remember this paragraph. Finally, we get some changes to the bylaws, one of which I found amusing. They have to clarify the timing required for mailing of stockholder notices. Okay, Microsoft identified something in the Activision bylaws that they weren't happy with in terms of how this proxy is going to go. So they have to modify the bylaws for that. Some ministerial amendments. And then Microsoft also said, hey, all of this stuff should be subject to the Court of Chancery of the state of Delaware, which is a fairly standard provision in public corporations, but apparently wasn't included to Microsoft's satisfaction in the Activision Blizzard bylaws as they stood immediately prior to this transaction taking place. So this is pretty normal. You see some cleanup from an acquirer that says, here's how we want your company to look. Doesn't change how they operate at all. But that's the merger agreement in total. $95, it goes away completely. It's a reverse triangular merger. Anchorage becomes Activision. Activision becomes owned by Microsoft. And then I want to talk about those reps and warranties just a little bit at the back end of this video. So there was a tweet from Steven Totillo that wound up getting reported on in places like Games Industry Biz and others that read through these reps and warranties of the merger agreement and said the following. Fascinating Activision SEC filing about the merger. They say there is no strike to the knowledge of the company. When sitting here in virtual legality and elsewhere, we know that the Raven quality assurance testers have been either striking or quasi-striking throughout this entire period. We know, for instance, that the Better ABK movement has been working with union organizers. We know that signature cards have gone out. We see a reference to no material allegations of sexual harassment since 2018, no legal proceedings 
that would have material adverse effects. And he's pulling out all of these things. Now, this is not intended to drag Stephen Totillo. In fact, I think he does a very good job at Axios. I've used his content and his references and his document findings quite a bit here in virtual legality. But this stuff is tricky. And if you're not reading those paragraphs, if you're not familiar with mergers and acquisitions, then you don't realize that the reps and warranties aren't doing that. Now, to Stephen Totillo's credit, he immediately takes this tweet that I make and he adds it to his thread and he points out that there is a change in how this thing operates that I talk about in that merger agreement. I say, hey, you can't read them as definitively as you are doing here. You can't read them for Activision is telling you there's no strike. Activision is telling you there's no harassment because of the disclosure letter concept, which we're going to take a look at in the merger agreement itself. But I point this out just to say, hopefully, if virtual legality is able to do anything, it's to correct some of the misnomers here in the reporting on these kinds of transactions, these deals that I am intimately familiar with. I have done so many disclosure schedules and schedule letters that I couldn't even count them in the number of years that I've worked in mergers and acquisitions, venture capital, and otherwise. So I knew how this operated even without reading the document. And I knew that reading those reps and warranties for truth value was wrong. And we see that here in section 1.4 of the 92 page merger agreement, which I will link in this description. If you're sleepy, I highly recommend checking it out. Reading through these things is what I do for a living. So you can read through them and have pity on me for what corporate law actually entails. But section 1.4a says the following. The information set forth in the disclosure letter delivered by the company to parent and merger sub, remember that's Activision delivering a letter to Microsoft, on the date of this agreement will be disclosed under separate and appropriate section and subsection references that correspond to what's in this agreement. The information set forth in each section or subsection of the company disclosure letter will be deemed to be an exception to the representations and warranties of the company that are set forth in the corresponding section or subsection of this agreement. So in practice, what does this look like? It means that when we scroll down to section three, after we get through some more documentation, we first see a proviso at the top of article three, which is the promises made by Activision that says, with respect to this section, except as disclosed to the SEC this year, or as set forth in that letter, the company reps and warrants to parent and merger sub as follows. So we make these promises, except as set forth in these two documents, which means one of the pieces of the process of doing a deal like this is that the company side of things goes through line by line and figures out where something is inaccurate. So when Stephen Totillo or another journalist looks at this and says, well, you've promised that there aren't litigation issues. You've promised that there aren't employment law issues or strikes or anything else. You say that in a rep and warranty, then you have to understand that one of the things that can happen behind the scenes is that the letter, the company disclosure letter says, actually, what we, when we say that there are no labor issues, we then put a narrative description of what's happening at Raven. And then both parties know about it. And Microsoft, if they choose to do so, can put in the document an indemnification provision, can otherwise adjust the purchase price, can uh, talk about these various things with Activision Blizzard. That's part of the due diligence process. But you write all of this so broadly, neither the company nor any of its subsidiaries is a party to a collective bargaining agreement. There is no organizing of the employees, even though you might know that signature documents are going out because you want, if you're Microsoft, you want Activision to be on the hook for this rep and you want them to be going through the process of actually disclosing to you all the exceptions that might otherwise apply. So somebody talked to me and said, well, isn't this hiding the ball? Isn't this deliberately obfuscating what's true? And the answer is no. The acquirer wants these reps and warranties to be as broad as possible. 
And they want them to be as broad as possible, not solely in order to make the other side lie, in order to induce indemnification provisions or pricing adjustments, but because there is value both in actually allocating the risk, hey, if this is a lie, that risk should be on you, not me. So we draft it broadly and also to know what it doesn't know, right? The lawyers and the management and the investigators and the auditors and everybody else can can storm the walls of Activision. They can look at every document that they think they can find, but they don't know what they don't know. And if this deal really did come together in the two months that the Wall Street Journal suggests, that GamesBeat suggests, then there's going to be information that Activision Blizzard has that Microsoft isn't necessarily going to find. So you draft these broadly and then you say, Activision Blizzard, it's on you. If you have something that you need to accept from the operation of this document, then you put that in the disclosure schedule and we can evaluate it even if we didn't find it separately. If you don't, if you screw up on your end, then suddenly you're liable for stuff that you should have told us about. And that's how this operates. Broad reps with disclosure schedules, and that is 100% standard for how mergers and acquisitions in the United States are drafted. Nobody's trying to hide the ball. This isn't unusual for Microsoft. This isn't unusual for Activision. And that's the one takeaway I want you to have with respect to what's in this merger agreement on that representations and warranty score, because you just can't read those provisions for truth value because you don't know what was accepted. You don't know what the parties have negotiated in terms of pricing adjustments for what might be inaccuracies in those documents. And so you can't report them that way, regardless of what you might have seen yesterday. Couple of other areas I wanted to highlight. Of course, I'm not going to read 92 pages of merger agreement to you here in virtual legality. I can't imagine you'd like that. Leave a comment if you just want to go line by line through a 100-page merger document at some point. I'm not saying I'll do it, but I'd be interested if there is any uptake for interest there. I wanted to point out that we got a lot of other reporting that talked about the fact that Microsoft isn't going to be running Activision after this was signed and before the purchase is made. And that's not unusual. Microsoft doesn't own Activision, but you do have provisions in this document that say, hey, Activision, you're not going to screw things up before we own you. And one of those is these affirmative obligations that say, hey, unless we otherwise talk about it, you will use your reasonable best efforts, consistent with how you ordinarily operate, to preserve your assets, your properties, your contracts, to keep available the services of your officers and key employees. And most importantly, I think for people that are interested in this, Preserve your current relationships and goodwill, such as it is for Activision, with customers, suppliers, partners, platform providers, etc. That Microsoft isn't going to run you. They don't have the right to run you before they own you. But you've agreed contractually to not do things like, hey, well, we are not owned by Microsoft yet. You've agreed to buy us for $95 a share. So actually, we're going to sell the rights to Call of Duty to Sony immediately before this transaction takes place. You can't do that kind of stuff. You've agreed to not change your overall course of business. And obviously, based on the hypothetical I just gave, you can see why that's important for the Microsofts of the world to get. Lots more documentation here, lots more legalese. Lawyers get paid when there's a business deal of this size. And we see other references to things like burdensome conditions. I pointed out earlier that this is having a material adverse impact on the company or its subsidiaries. If the FTC or the DOJ were to ask for something that the parties felt was burdensome, then that could essentially count as an antitrust block and cause you to have to evaluate various other provisions of the document to see if anything bad happens from there. And then we get more and more and more right down to the fees that have to be paid 
for the breakup listing. So I can tell you, I skimmed through this. I, I looked through this. This is a fairly standard document, if you can believe it, for 92 pages. Honestly, once you get past a few million dollars, most of these look the same, regardless of whether it's 70 billion or less. And the merger is described as that summary puts forth the representations and warranties, relatively standard. Unfortunately, we don't get that kind of on the ground understanding of what Activision is disclosing to Microsoft in that company disclosure letter. But we do now know that the parties are invested in their relationship to the tune of two to $3 billion if something should go wrong. So will the FTC or DOJ step in? If they do, they'll cost Microsoft a lot of money. Will somebody else look at $95 and say, well, that really is a deal. Maybe we should offer something else to Activision on the understanding that there's a bit of a poison pill there already because $2 billion of their value, whatever it might be, will come immediately off the books and be paid to Microsoft just for going through the trouble of entering into the document first. That's virtual legality for today. If you enjoy this deep dive into merger agreements, technology, business, and law, please consider supporting the channel through Patreon or otherwise. We've got other ways to support us listed down below. We cannot do it without viewers and listeners like you. Otherwise, just subscribing, upvoting, downvoting, sharing it on Twitter, Reddit, forums, wherever you find yourself, telling your friends that we're having these conversations every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.